Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur First podcast, where we uncover the stories and get inspired by some of the world's most impressive founders. My name is Matt Clifford, I'm the co-founder of Entrepreneur First, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we're talking about how AI is set to transform medicine by enabling faster and more effective cancer diagnosis and treatment. I spoke to Pahini Pandya, founder of Panakia, whose technology aims to provide reliable results in minutes rather than the days or weeks that are currently the norm. I hope you enjoy our conversation about how AI is revolutionizing cancer treatment and saving lives. Panakia was co-founded at Entrepreneur First by Pahini Pandya, a former cancer scientist at the University of Cambridge, and AI expert Pandu Raharja Lu. Their AI-powered platform enables simplified, rapid diagnostics for cancer. Patients will be able to see reliable results in minutes, rather than having to go through multiple physical tests over several days or weeks. Their AI-powered breast cancer diagnosis technology was approved for UK and EU use last year represents a crucial milestone for their work. I asked Pahini to tell us how they do it. So at Panakia, we like to say what we are doing is next generation biomarker profiling. What does this mean? Um, in order to diagnose and treat diseases such as cancers, um, what you normally need to do is uh, doctors need to take a tissue biopsy and then they need to run many different types of lab tests. These are tests such as genomic tests or genetic tests that most people are aware of. And most of these tests, because they are physical, they take a very long time. And of course, they are quite expensive. And as we move towards precision or personalized medicine, you're needing more and more tests. So the time that a patient effectively has to wait to get the right treatment is increasing. Um, so in order to address that issue, what Panakia did was come up with a very creative approach. We decided to use AI and apply it to reduce the need for multiple lab-based tests. So in essence, what we ended up doing is building a platform, a software solution that can take in pictures of tissues, which are routinely used in both clinical settings as well as research, analyze them, and provide experts with the same information as lab-based tests. So now you would know whether a patient has a mutation or not directly by looking at images rather than have to, having to do a physical lab test. So in essence, what the big advantage of this digital approach is, is experts can get results in a matter of minutes and in a very, very cost-effective manner, which makes it more accessible to patients and doctors all over the world because it's location agnostic, it's very, very timely, and it's not restricted by socioeconomic constraints. The real key here and the, the sort of like breakthrough that you've achieved is you're doing this in a purely visual way. You are literally taking an image, uh, a digital image, and the computer vision algorithms and models that you've built are doing the rest of the work. And so you're taking what was effectively a, a sort of problem in the world of atoms, if you like, and turning it into a problem in the world of bits. And maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the results you start to see. I mean, you, you recently um, uh, released a, you know, a, a preprint of a pretty impressive study that suggests this approach is going to be quite important. 
Yes. So what started as pretty much an idea where, that Pandu and I came up with, and we thought we could make it work given our expertise, um, has genuinely blown up into proportions beyond what we could have imagined in such a short space of time. So in just three years, we actually showed that such an approach can work across more than 4,000 different types of molecular markers of cancers. So these are linked to many different cancer types. And this is phenomenal because it actually shows that this approach has a much broader applicability than what we initially imagined it to be. It's much more robust. And we've also been able to show that it's actually very translatable. So it can be packaged into a software product that can be applied in a clinic. We've actually done that for our first clinical product, which focuses on breast cancer and gives information on three of the most routinely tested breast cancer markers uh, directly from images. The results are very, very rapid. So you'd get results in less than 15 minutes. And um, we've recently received regulatory approvals for it across the UK and Europe as well. So that's a huge achievement. And the market has responded in ways that we would have not expected. I wanted to understand the scale of Pahini's ambitions and how many lives she thought could be transformed by Panakia's work. So I asked her to take us through her thinking on how she scales her business. Yeah, so our goal for the immediate future is to get this breast cancer product out to the clinics as quickly as we can. So in order to do that, what we are doing is we're working with several different hospitals who are very keen to deploy our product test it, evaluate it, both in a, on historic cases as well as on new cases that are incoming. We would do that for most of this year, and this would allow us to generate enough evidence to show that the product works very, very safely and is quite robust across multiple different hospitals. It's generalizable, which is a key challenge around AI. And of course, as soon as that is done, some of these early adopters are also very keen to start using it in routine clinical practice where it can make a very, very big difference. So we expect that to happen very soon. I always like to hear founder stories about how and why they got into entrepreneurship. So I asked Bahini what inspired her to become an entrepreneur in the first place. My journey to entrepreneurship started as early as eight years old. Um, and the reason why I say that is because when I was an eight-year-old kid, I just stumped up to my parents one day and said, I have decided I'm going to be a scientist. And I had decided I was going to be a scientist at Cambridge because that's where all great scientists go. Eventually, you know, uh, several years later, I did end up doing a postdoctoral research at um, University of Cambridge. I specifically chose cancer research because I had lost a friend to the disease. But during this journey, a pivotal moment arrived where I had my own personal cancer scare when I was doing my PhD studies. Um, and I had to wait for a whole month to get an all clear. That event made me realize that cancer does not wait for anyone. And I really wanted to translate my scientific expertise into real world applications in a much more reasonable time than what academia would allow. So I explored a variety of options and I realized that entrepreneurship was the way forward. Um, it would allow me to translate my scientific expertise very much hands-on, right? I would actually make use of the research that I did. Um, it also allowed me to translate a lot of the skills that I had learned during academia, but at the same time, it gave me 
a lot of the things that academia gave me, such as, you know, lifelong learning, new challenges on a daily basis, um, and so on. So, so those were some of the key reasons why I ended up um, going down the entrepreneurship route. And one of the things I did realize was I, I needed a co-founder to build a business and there were, EF was the best option out there. It was a big shift of gears for Pahini when she quit working as a scientist to become a founder. So I asked her to tell us how she handled this transition. One of the first things I can say is that it wasn't an easy transition. Since I was eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, right? And then even just coming to terms with the fact that this is what I wanted to do and this is going to be a huge change. To accept it took me quite a while. So I had to grow quite a lot. There were also additional constraints that I had established for my own self, right? I, I was thinking, oh, what do I know about entrepreneurship? Can I really run a business, you know? Those were some of the key areas that I had questions about. To mitigate that, I took a very scientific approach. I was like, you know what? I'm going to design this like an experiment. I need to gather some basic information. So I started off by attending a few different courses, which allowed me to get a better understanding of what it means to be an entrepreneur, but also what it means to start up a company, what are some of the necessary things. And then once I felt like I had enough uh, information, I was like, okay, what are the next steps? Then the next step was to see if there were any specific ideas or at least areas that I was interested in uh, looking at. I did do experiments where I did try startups on the side, which gave me a lot more hands-on experience, but also allowed me to learn and experiment and fail quite quickly at a small scale while that experience, uh, you know, did not continue into anything big, it was sufficient for me to know very well that, A, I wanted to have a startup where I had a co-founder who was as committed as I was, but most importantly, had very complementary skills to what I did have. And B, it had to be in the cancer space because this was genuinely something I was motivated by. And it was something that I could see myself working in. I had already spent a decade working in cancer research. I knew that I could very easily spend the next 15 to 20 years of my life working in this area. It had to be something that would allow me to translate some of my scientific knowledge. I just didn't expect that it would culminate into this direct translation. And then I think finally, the last bit was um, a little bit more about realization that no matter how many courses or how many, you know, uh, things I would do, I would not be ready to ever do a startup till I actually started doing it. And that was one of the major realizations, which made me realize that going and doing another job is probably not going to help me. And getting a little bit more experience here and a little bit more experience there was probably not such a great idea. I just needed to take jump full time. And that's pretty much why I ended up at EF. I think uh, there are some things which are much harder, like academia, you can have a much more paced life because you're the one who is in charge of your timing, right? Whereas with startups, it's the market that is driving your timing. So if there are changes in the market, you need to move fast to be able to adapt to them. So so the, the, the level of control that you have around the, the sort of pace and the sort of decisions you make is a lot more in your control during academia whilst it gradually reduces over time in a startup. Um, and and that, that transition, if you're mentally prepared for it, is easy to do, but it's something that you need to be aware of. And if you're not aware of, you can be caught off guard. 
Um, I think that was one of the things. The other thing is around communication. So we are building a very complex deep tech startup with science, you know, very deep science behind it and communicating that to a wide variety of stakeholders in a very effective manner is a consistent challenge, right? And it also changes because uh, every single day you meet somebody who's new, who's different, who understands things differently. And what you need to be able to do is adapt very quickly and figure out ways to scale up and down your storytelling. A startup CEO said to me the other day, if I'd realized how much of my life would be spent just repeating our story, with slightly different nuances, depending on who I'm speaking to. I had just recorded it, had it, on, had it on repeat. That's a good idea. Yeah, it might be a slightly weird vibe at a party. So what do you do? Just one minute, let me, let me press play. Um, but, all right, um, I, I just have one more question on that, um, which is about fundraising, which I think is on a lot of people's minds, even before they... You know, if they're thinking about starting a startup and, you know, it's one of the things that's most talked about, or at least the outcome is, how have you found fundraising? Is it a part of your job as a CEO you've enjoyed or is it sort of something that you slightly dread? Yeah, I think for me, it initially was something that I was a little bit more, you know, um, cautious of because I had no clue what to expect, right? And the journey during EF, the training that we got was brilliant. It uh, demystified a lot of things around fundraising and eventually it became fun. So we we were fundraising again uh, and the way we start looking at it is, again, it's, it's like a scientific process, right? You go, you talk to someone, you follow that conversation, you reflect on it, you figure out what went well, what didn't go well, and what can you tweak so that the next pitch is even better. That's the way you think about it. At least that's the way I decided to think about it. For me, that that makes it very, very exciting because then, you know, you're not worried too much about the individual conversations per se, as you are more focused on the outcome and the progress that you're making in getting to that outcome, right? It's it's focusing more on the ultimate outcome that you want. And what you do want is you want a variety of investors who are able to understand your space, support you um, to the best of their abilities and help the company grow. Um, it's it's ultimately, it's about uh, what Panakia needs to grow. So that's, that's what, what I am thinking. And I think um, you can make it into a very fun game and make it a very pleasant process if you allow it to be. I feel very proud that Entrepreneur First played quite a big part in the founding story of Panakia. And so I was quite interested to hear from Pahini what made her want to join EF in the first place. I had a couple of friends who had ended up at EF, which was quite great. There were some friends from my other endeavors during my PhD uh, one of them has a very successful company in medtech space. And then there, uh, what it was quite interesting because towards the time that I was a- actively making decisions, I was also involved in a few other networks, um, one of which had a founder's dinner. I was invited to that dinner because I was working on a startup in parallel, but I was looking at what other opportunities were there, right? And I ended up at a dinner where there were at least three people who were in EF. And every single one of them very strongly recommended EF. And coincidentally, it was about the same time that I did get an invite from EF for attending one of the events. So I did uh, attend the event and it happened to be quite interesting. I loved the variety of people I was able to meet at the Biscuit Factory. And that was pretty much it. I was like, you know what, Uh, this is a short program and it would be 
you know, quite interesting to take the chance. To be fair, also, Entrepreneur First was one of its kind at the time when I was looking to build a company. There were a couple of other offshoots out there, but A, they were not that established. B, the quality of people that you would access and the period of time in which you were able to access these people was significantly different. It was very, very accelerated. Entrepreneur First is the best place in the world to find a co-founder. And that's the main reason that many people join us. While co-founding a business can be exciting, it certainly comes with challenges. So I asked Pahini to share her experience of working with her co-founder, Pandu. Pandu is the CTO at Panakia and his background is very opposite. So um, he has a double bachelor's and a double master's in computer science and mathematics. Um, which he leveraged to build AI solutions uh, for different parts of the cancer problem. So he uh, worked at Roche in cancer drug discovery and design. In academia, he was one of the first few to build and publish early computer vision models, which could look at changes in cancer cells and link them to biological outcomes, which was very similar to what I was trying to do during my PhD. So he was basically automating my PhD in a way. Um, And then he worked at Siemens uh, across different divisions, Uh, building ML solutions at scale. It was quite a journey and it was a fun journey, but I'm really glad that we ended up where we did um, because I couldn't imagine it any other way. Even my approach to EF was very, very structured. I planned out when, when I saw who the other people were, I filtered them down by who was interested in med tech and seemed to have the right sort of complementary expertise. I knew I would be a domain expert rather than you know, a tech expert. So I was looking for tech experts who had the ability to build. I had a short list of people who I spoke to before the program even began. I met with some of them. I couldn't meet Pandu because he was in Germany at the time. And we managed to have a very, very tricky phone call whilst I was traveling to India because I was traveling and I had a very poor internet connection. So he basically had to fill in the blanks. What that meant was when we did start the program, Pandu teamed up with somebody else in the first hour and I lost that window of opportunity. So when you say there is maximum potential on day one, week one, that is very, very true. But it also meant that it gave me the ability to work with some of the other people. So I had an internal ranking and I like to describe it much better now than I had I described it the way when I was at EF. I was essentially, in essence, looking for a fit um, across skills fit across uh, behaviors and across culture. So I teamed up with a couple of different people, brainstormed a few different ideas, all in the cancer space, um, mapped out the entire timeline. And we also spoke to a variety of stakeholders to identify what were some of the big problems that I could work with in the different teams that I was a part of. So I had uh, the the first co-founder I worked with really well. We progressed very, very quickly. We were a great team, but there came a natural point where two of us realized because of this exercise that we did of, you know, patient journey mapping and identifying the different problems, both of us were passionate about slightly different problems. So we we came to a mutual conclusion that, look, you know what, we're early in the process. This is the best time to break up. And if nothing else works, we know that we both can always work together. So that was the leap that we decided to take. With the second team, I very quickly realized it wasn't working at all. It was complete opposite of my first team. The progress was very slow. Um, We were not able to make headway quicker. And the complementarity and expertise wasn't as high as I would have expected. 
went to be. Throughout this while, I was building a very good friendship with my co-founder, Pandu, and we were just, you know, getting together, getting to know each other as people, as friends, not in a work context. So I think that was pivotal because at the end of week six, when we did decide to team up, and this was, you know, just um, one week, uh, one and a half weeks away from the final end of team building phase, we knew what we were getting into. The pivotal moment came when we decided to meet up on, both of us were out of teams. We decided to meet up on a Saturday at uh, a venue outside of EF in Kings. And it was raining. The tubes were closed and the roads were blocked because of a parade. So Pandu had to walk across London and I had to basically hop 10 different trains because the trains had stopped working. So it was one of those unusual days where you had really heavy rain and both of us could have canceled. But we both did end up there and we started brainstorming. And I said, look, these are some of the findings that I have. These are some of the areas, you know, which look quite interesting. And that's where we had a light bulb moment because we realized that the three hours we spent together, we were literally building on top of each other and the effect was multiplicative. So that was one of the big light bulb moments. What we also did realize was that the two of us had worked in a very, very niche space. So that was absolutely critical. Finding someone who had looked at linking cancer shapes to biological outcomes, but using machine learning, whilst I had done that from the biological side, that sort of fit. I wasn't expecting at all. I don't think Andrew was expecting it either. That level of complementarity was, you know, it was a one in a million chance encounter. So we did realize that we had something very unique and we could build something that nobody else in the world could build. And we decided to go forward. And I did, uh, on the cultural side, one of the things Pandu did mention was this commitment that, you know, either of us could have canceled, but we decided to go there, meet there, keep our commitments. Um, and that level of dedication was something that really made us realize that we could work very well together. And how big's the team at Panakia today? We're growing. The number keeps changing on a daily basis, but we are uh, between 10 to 15 people at the moment. And we are... Um, currently growing even further. Initially, when we started, we started growing the team on the tech side. Um, up until beginning of 2021, we were less than 10 people. The big inflection point started coming in later in 2021 when we started adding people to support uh, product development, commercialization, and operations. And we are expecting to grow further on those areas as well this year. My experience, a healthy dose of ambition is usually at the core of most successful founders' personalities. I asked Pahini to share some of her ambitions with us and how they've impacted her work at Panagia. The way I like to frame this answer is I'm a millennial, so I'm one of those lucky generations who's actually seen the world really, really change as a result of technology and internet-based businesses. That's pretty much how my ambition changed. I was quite lucky that I had supportive parents who, um, from day one, told me, you know what, you can do whatever you want to do in life. Dream big, right? So for me, when I think of doing things, ambition is ingrained. I don't actively think whether it's ambitious or not. But the scale of ambition has genuinely changed. And what this means is what as an eight-year-old, I thought being a scientist, being able to make difference in thousands of lives is, is a big thing, right? My granddad was a, uh, a scientist. I saw the impact he had on hundreds and thousands of students. And I was like, oh, wow, 
and you can build technologies which at someday, you know, will change other lives as well. So that's what motivated me. But as I grew, as my exposure to knowledge grew, as I moved countries, <laughs> uh, my exposure to the world also increased. What this made me realize, and, you know, with the, the knowledge that I had access to over time, it made me realize that there's more than a few thousand people in the world, right? So when I started thinking, why just a few thousand? Why not a few hundred thousand? That's what I started thinking when I started doing cancer research. Eventually, as an entrepreneur, I started thinking, why not millions and billions? You know, why, why limit myself to a few thousands to a million? So that's how the thought process has evolved. Even within Panakia, it started as, oh, we could save millions of lives to actually realizing the potential impact of our technology. And we can actually save billions of lives, not just millions, by making healthcare more accessible. That's the dream that we're pursuing is making it more accessible to patients and doctors all over the world. Yeah, I mean, one of the amazing things about technology entrepreneurship uh, is that scalability. The fact that you really can reach millions or billions of people, as you say, you know, you don't have to be in the room because actually by building software, uh, you know, models, anything that, that, you know, has sort of zero marginal cost, you, you actually are in a position where you know, in theory, there's there's no limit to, to how many people you can reach. And that's a relatively new thing. I mean, like 30 years ago, that's probably not a really, wasn't a realistic way of thinking about, about the world. And I think one of the things that, you know, we're very passionate about at, at EF is the fact that software has come to, you know, have impact in so many areas that maybe 20 years ago wouldn't have been seen as, you know, kind of software adjacent field. I mean, I guess that's the Mark Andreessen idea, software is eating the world. Starting a startup is really, really hard. Most founders experience obstacles which threaten to stall their progress at some point in the journey. Pahini told me that one of the most common challenges she sees entrepreneurs struggle with is dealing with imposter syndrome. So I started to talk a little bit more about that. I think there's a variety of different barriers. I think the, the biggest one that I keep consistently coming across is imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> Where people tend to think, you know, like, am I good enough? Do I have the right sort of skills? And, and it's something that almost everybody faces. The, the key there is to be able to find ways to work around that imposter syndrome. You'll always have imposter syndrome as an entrepreneur, right? You're always dealing with things that you've never dealt with before. I, I would say about majority of your time is spent dealing with new challenges on a daily basis, um, which you're not necessarily which you haven't experienced or you're not necessarily equipped to deal with, but you have to find quick workarounds and ways around it. So that's one of the things and overcoming that and helping getting people who help you find ways and strategies to mitigate that is really critical. Some people have it inbuilt, some people don't. If you don't, there are ways to overcome it, right? So that's one of the big things. I think the second one is around being scared to ask. <laughs> A lot of people are so, so, so scared to ask, and that pulls back a lot of people. If I hadn't, you know, bugged Pandu, and if I hadn't asked him, hey, would you be interested in doing an idea with me? I would have never known whether he would have worked with me. The latest mentality that I've adopted is, you know, even when I'm applying for the most ambitious things, like when I was applying for a PhD, I didn't have the right sort of resources. I didn't have a lot of ecosystems with, where I had the, the knowledge that I needed 
in order to be successful and get a PhD up front, right? But I figured it out. I, I just literally sent cold emails to a bunch of professors and said, hey, I like what you're doing. Would you be interested in having a chat? I want to understand a little bit more about the process. Most of them didn't reply, but there were quite a good handful of people who did. And the amount of information that I got from them was huge and, you know, eventually led to success. This is exactly the same thing that we do at Panakia is like, we do things and worry about the outcome, whether it's going to be positive or negative for certain things later, like whether it's reaching out to a potential client or whether it's applying for a grant and so on. You know, we will worry about, you know, what are the challenges around the grant if we are in a choice to get it right, because then you have a choice whether you want to take it or not. So so you you want to step up, you want to speak up and ask. And I think the last one I won't go into some of the other ones, but the last one I would say is a little bit out of your control, but sometimes it's luck. And what you do want to do is maximize your chances of being at the right place at the right time. Luck is a function of that. Um, and I think that's what EF did for me was I joined EF and it allowed me to meet the right people at the right time, which is what led to Panagia. So that's the way I think about it. So many great points there. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I, I think this point about in, imposter syndrome is, is so important. One of the reasons it doesn't go away, as you sort of emphasized, was that your role changes all the time as a as a founder. And, you know, maybe particularly as a CEO, almost all the challenges you're dealing with are new. And as soon as you get used to one and feel you get good at it, you know, I've mastered that, you know, there's a new one that you haven't. I think the other thing which is sort of related, but but not quite the same, is that um as you grow, as your company grows and becomes more successful, you're also exposed to bigger problems, um, but also to more successful people. Um, and so like that, the sort of um, seed of imposter syndrome gets re-sown every time because suddenly either your, your customers, your competitors, uh, your investors, the people you need to hire are all a level up in their own journeys from where you were a year before, two years before. And so, you know, particularly, I think, you know, a lot of founders I work with experience this when they're hiring, because, of course, the whole point of hiring an exec team in a startup is to hire people who are better than you at a specific functional thing, because no founder can be their own VP sales, VP marketing, VP people, VP whatever. And so naturally, that means that when you interview these senior execs, you know, they are better than you or whatever. And so it's that keeping intention the reality and the knowledge that, of course, um, they're, uh, they're better at you than you at what they do with the fact that you're the one sitting on your side of the table for a reason. You know, you've built something that they're at least interested enough to come and interview with you um, about. And, and I think it's that difficult. It's finding that difficult balance of confidence and, and humility, because I think you do need both in a in a startup. And I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about um imposter syndrome i'm sort of thought that 10 years into building this company i would be over it by now (laughs) (laughs) i'm really not um so that that i think is uh, right just a quick thought on lock as well because i I think so right to say that and you know i think it's quite tempting for once founders have had some success to attribute it all to to skill but but i think this point that you made about how do you put yourself in environments and in situations where you benefit from volatility, if you like, from randomness and uh, the potential for outsized upside. And and I think one of the things I love about working with entrepreneurs and funding entrepreneurs is that it is almost like the ultimate asymmetric bet. 
you know, like um, if you start a startup and you get unlucky and it doesn't work out, well, you know, you've lost some time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things um, and, you know, in the last several years now, I've started speaking to a lot of uh, PhDs who come asking me, how did you make the transition? And I think people don't realize how similar working in academia and working in a startup is like uh, apart from being able to directly translate your scientific expertise, there's a whole bunch of soft skills um, that you learn. You learn project management. You're doing multiple projects at the same time. You're an excellent person who deals with that. You deal with uncertainty on a day-to-day basis. You set up experiments, right? Um, and, and that approach, the scientific approach, is very useful when you're thinking about a startup because you can change variables, you can adjust things and figure out what works and what works repeatably, right? So you, you need that um, uh, repeatable uh, sales model or repeatable ability to build a product and so on. So those are just some of the things that you think about. In addition to that, you're equipped for finance management, you apply for grants, you do budgets, you manage your cash flows, you are taught how to do marketing, albeit, you know, in a more scientific sense. But there is a translation of the storytelling aspect, right? There's there's no point in doing the best possible research if you cannot communicate it to uh, the to the audience that you're trying to target. And I think there's also a very big criticality about being able to achieve milestones in a practical manner because at the end of the day, a PhD can be a four to a seven year thing um, and you are used to setting up your own milestones. You know what the inflection points look like and then you are the one who is responsible for achieving them. You are the one who is losing the title of a PhD. So. Those are just some of the key things that I've noticed, which are very, very similar within academia. And of course, we also work with a lot of resource constraints in both academia and early stages of the startup. So it definitely significantly helps. The way I think about it is entrepreneurship is a mindset. You can be an entrepreneur anywhere, whether that's in a lab, whether that's in a startup or whether that's in a big company, right? It's it's about the mindset and have you leverage the the thinking around being able to solve problems and overcome challenges. I always like to hear what a founder's big plans for the future are and how they're thinking about getting there. So I asked Pahini to share some of the big upcoming milestones for her and Panakia. I think there's two things. First one is getting our first product to the market. And second one, because we've shown that our technology works across several thousands of markers, it's bringing those to market and replacing thousands of different tests. That's huge. And it's something we're really excited about. So in terms of the clinical product, we would want to bring it out within the next one to two years, which we're already working towards. We are also very keen to bring several of the other ones out within the next two to three years. We do expect the thousand one to be you know, scaled within the next several years, but it's it's quite hugely exciting. And we have shown that we are able to move very rapidly. Now it's just a matter of how quickly the customers want it and how quickly are they able to move. I think what Pahini and Pandu are doing at Panakia is hugely important work. And I'm really grateful to imagine a world where cancer diagnosis happens so quickly, so accurately, so reliably. So I was, given all that, curious to find out what kind of work Pahini thinks she'd be doing if she hadn't started a company. 
that's really tough. When I made the transition out of academia, I had explored literally all options. I looked at industry, I looked at consulting, I looked at uh, the policy sphere as well as entrepreneurship. And I made a very, very deliberate decision to pursue entrepreneurship. So I'd very likely be doing a startup. It would probably be a startup in the cancer space. Idea would probably vary based on, you know, the co-founder I would have had for the business. But Panagia by far has been, you know, like literally it has met all the all the requirements I had when, when thinking of doing a startup. So I'm glad I'm doing it. I always like to close the show by asking founders to share what advice they would give to a entrepreneur at the very start of that journey. I would say persevere. Don't take no for an answer. You'll get a lot of no's. They, all you need is, you know, one or two yeses. So don't get disheartened. Just take it as a process, a learning process. Maximize the information and insights you get out of them and apply them to the very next endeavor that you're doing. So yeah, that's what I would say. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Entrepreneur First podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing how Pahini and Panakia are using cutting edge innovation to tackle challenges in the world of medicine. Join us in the next episode where I speak to Drew Olagunabi, co-founder and CEO of Lati Labs, where he's going to talk about how his company is building an end-to-end editing platform for high-fidelity UX animation for the web and mobile. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about Entrepreneur First, visit joinef.com. Big thank you as always to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the podcast. And thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Co-fruition.